you turn in your Bible to John 14, Gospel of John, chapter 14. <coughs> Those who may be visiting, we're studying this Gospel for a couple of years now, halfway through. John 14, we'll look at the first three verses of this chapter this morning. As Moses approached the burning bush in the wilderness there in Exodus chapter 3, the Lord said, Take off your shoes, Moses. You're standing on holy ground. That's kind of how I feel this morning coming to this text. I, I, I feel as though I have no right to be standing here talking about this. I feel like I need to take off my shoes and step lightly in this holy place. For you see, I'm very conscious of the fact that the Lord doesn't need me in order to speak to you through these verses. He's proven that thousands of times over, over the centuries. As his people facing unspeakable trouble have heard his own voice loud and clear speaking these words. He doesn't need me to tell you. He tells you these things. Pardon my King James English, but that's how I learned these verses, and it always reverts to that. Let not your hearts be troubled. You believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself. That where I am, there ye may be. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would not let my words get in the way of yours today. As I take 30 minutes to try to say what you've said so eloquently in 30 seconds. Forbid, Lord, that I should water it down. In any way, dilute the power and the strength of what you have said. May I only apply it full strength our situation as best as we can. Speak to us, Lord, your truth in these words. In Jesus' name, amen. These first few verses of John 14, there are two commands, two imperatives. Actually, they're both found in the first verse. One says, do not let your hearts be troubled. And the next says, trust in God and trust in me. Two commands. Not being a real creative sort of guy, we just have those be the two points of the sermon this morning. The two commands. Makes it easy. Let me rephrase it a little. Let me put it this way. Never give in to trouble. Never give in to trouble. Perhaps you remember that song a few years back. Don't worry, be happy. Remember that? Grated on your nerves too, didn't it? 
Surely Jesus cannot mean something as vacuous and superficial as that. Don't worry. Be happy. Let not your hearts be troubled. Life is full of trouble, isn't it? Job 5, 7 says, Man is born to trouble as surely as the sparks fly upward. Uh, that sounds a little more realistic than, Don't worry, be happy. That's our common human experience, isn't it? We have the trouble of the uncertainty of the future, and with all of its bleak prospects, and depending on our, our imagination how bleak they might be, but no matter what, they always end in death and separation. Trouble is ahead. We have the trouble of the realities of the present, frail bodies that continue to get weaker and more diseased and finally die, hurting and broken relationships that no matter what, they never can quite get fixed, and then the agony of the soul inside and the fear, the anxiety, the uncertainty and the confusion, the loneliness, the hurt. And then, of course, we've got that trouble that we're still carrying from the past, all the memories. Things that could have been opportunities lost forever. Things that should never have happened. And they did. And our soul is wounded. Trouble. Past, present, future. Life is full of trouble. And Jesus says, do not let your hearts be troubled. You see, Jesus knows his disciples rather well. He, as he speaks these words sitting in the upper room with his disciples around for the Last Supper. He knows what's going on in their hearts as they sit there. Put yourself in their situation. Think a little bit about the anxiety that they're dealing with that Jesus addresses when he speaks these words to them. For example, in the verse just before, Jesus tells Peter, after Peter's great confession... I will follow you anywhere, Lord. I'll die for you, Lord. The Lord says, you're going to deny me three times before morning. Peter's probably a little troubled right now. And the rest of them are saying, wow. Peter's going to deny. I mean, he's the leader. He's the strongest. He's the most vocal. Well, what about me? And by the way, who's the, who's the betrayer Jesus was talking about? Is that me? Who is that? A little anxiety in the room. And outside of that room, they knew all kinds of trouble was brewing. Everybody knew that the officials were looking for a way to trap Jesus, looking for a way to, to put him to death. What is that going to mean for them? And the worst thing of all, Jesus now says, I'm going away. Just when things are getting terrible, I'm going away. And you can't come. Well, wait, wait a minute, Lord. We left everything to follow you. You're the Messiah, right? What do you mean you're going away? What, what are we going to do? There's nothing to go back to. Make no mistake, these men face trouble. Their world is crashing in on them all of a sudden. They're not so sure about themselves, they're not so sure about each other, and they don't know what on earth the Lord is doing and what the future holds, and the cold grip of fear is seizing their hearts. 
Jesus says, don't let your hearts be troubled like that. Now, Jesus knew about trouble. We talked about that a few weeks ago. The truth is that Jesus, the same word for trouble is used of Jesus no less than three times in the last few chapters. Back in chapter 11, when Jesus stands near his friend Lazarus's tomb, we read that Jesus was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Chapter 12, Jesus speaks of his hour having come, and he says, my heart, my heart is troubled. Remember we talked about the, the agony of Gethsemane that he faced there. And then right up here in chapter 13, verse 21, as Jesus spoke of the betrayer, John takes note, after he had said this, Jesus was troubled in spirit. You see, Jesus knows about trouble. He's been there. He understands about trouble. And yet here he says, do not let your hearts be troubled. What does he mean? Jesus is not a fool. Jesus is not blithely saying, don't worry, be happy. That wasn't his experience, that wasn't the disciples' experience, and he knows that's not your experience. No, Jesus is preparing his disciples for what lies ahead. He's preparing them for times of trouble which they cannot yet imagine. Trouble that is akin to the cross where he's headed. And his word to them is this, no matter what may happen, no matter how bad it may get, never give in to the trouble. Don't let your heart be troubled. You see, you can't stop trouble from coming your way, but you can stop, you can refuse to let it master you. The grammar of this verse is very crystal clear that that's the meaning. Dr. James Montgomery Boyce puts it this way. He says, what are we to do? in such circumstances? The answer is that we are to take ourselves in hand by a deliberate exercise of mind and strengthen our faith in God. We are to think of him and so overcome trouble by reminding ourselves of the power and promises of God and by trusting he goes on even more pointedly. Jesus did not say, mull over your problems. In fact, he did not even say, tell me about your problems, though that would certainly be appropriate. He said, do not be troubled. Do not let this present troubled state continue. Never give in to the trouble. Isn't that the pattern we find throughout the scripture? I think of the Apostle Paul telling about his own experience, his own ministry. Remember what he says? You write 2 Corinthians. We are hard pressed on every side, but we are not crushed. We are perplexed, but we are not in despair. We are persecuted. Can't stop that. But we are not abandoned. We're struck down. But we are not 
destroyed. In other words, the Apostle Paul is saying, we can't keep trouble from coming our way. We can't keep persecution coming from, from coming our way. We can't keep uh, all kinds of hard-pressed, perplexing situations from coming our way. But we will never give in to that trouble. Folks, the Lord knows you have trouble this morning. He's been there himself. He walked through it with these disciples. He's walked through it with thousands of his people over the darkest of times. So don't you despair in the middle of your trouble, whatever it might be. You see, victory is not for those who have no trouble. Nor is victory for those who have decided there's no hope and it's just too bad and I give up. No, victory is for those who believe that in spite of all of the evidence to the contrary, God is still on the throne, he's still in control, and I will not, I will not give in. I will not give up. I will not lay down and roll over and die. No, I will not let my heart be troubled. How do you do that? <laughs> what do you do? See, that's so unnatural. Yes, it is. Which brings us to the second thing that Jesus says, and the thing he spends most of his time talking about. Jesus says, second, trust me. That's how. Trust me, Jesus said. Ray Stedman, pastor down in California, dead a few years now, commented that Jesus' instruction here could well be called a manual for stress management. Of course, if you call it that, you'd have to charge big money for the seminar, probably. So we'll just take it as it is, free, godly advice. Trust me. Don't let trouble overwhelm you. Trust me. Here the apostles' faces are pressed to the wall. They're scared out of their wits. They don't know what the future holds. They see disaster looming before them. They see Jesus saying he's going to leave leave them all alone right in the middle of all this. They don't know what's going on. And what on earth are we going to do? And Jesus knows that it's going to be worse than they ever dreamed. Because not only is he leaving, and not only is he going to die, they're going to die before this is over. And in that context, Jesus tells them what they need to learn, what they will have to know in order to hang in there, in order to be faithful, in order to not let trouble overwhelm them. Jesus says, Trust me. Trust God and trust me. And then he goes on to give some specifics about what that means to trust him. Three things he tells us here. The first he says, trust me, heaven is real. In my Father's house, verse 2, are many rooms. It doesn't really say mansions, it says rooms. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. Trust me, he says, heaven is real. What's Jesus talking about here? God is a spirit, and so we might be tempted to say, well, it's figurative language. No. Jesus uses the word place. Place. Several times he uses it here. Place. My father's house. It's a place. Indeed, that's consistent with the rest of the Bible. He speaks of the heaven of Jerusalem. He speaks of the city of the living God. 
This is the place where Jesus, who was raised from the dead, how? Spiritually, not just in the spirit, in a body. A body that the disciples saw and touched and felt and ate with. And where is that body? It ascended into heaven and he sits at the right hand of the Father in a place, my Father's house, where the body of the God-man lives. It's the place where Jesus is adored and worshipped by the company of the angels, thousands upon thousands, 10,000 times 10,000. It's the place where he's adored by those who've gone before us, whose battle is over and complete. Now, coming from our scientific kind of culture, we may have trouble with that. We've looked into the heavens with the most powerful telescopes we can create, with telescopes that are even orbiting out there, away from the Earth's atmosphere, and we haven't seen it. One of the early Russian cosmonauts was out in orbiting, and he says, looked around, and it's not here. No heaven out here. Oh, really, is our knowledge of the universe so vast now that we can say that with certainty? There's no such place in the universe. Our knowledge of the universe that is about as big as one drop of water in all of the ocean, and we're going to say with certainty, oh no, there is no such place. Jesus says, trust me. Trust me. Heaven is real. It's my Father's house. I've been there. If it weren't true, I would have told you. I haven't lied to you here. Trust me. Heaven is real. What does that have to do with the trouble? What does that have to do with not being troubled? Well, you see, if, if heaven is not real, then this life is all there is, right? Do what you please. Have fun. Being comfortable is having it your way is the ultimate good. Trouble comes. Oh, life's over. Oh, but if we're going to the Father's house, trouble doesn't matter so much right now. If we're going to be in the Father's house for eternity, does it? Well, we could put up with anything for a few years. We're going to be in the Father's house forever. And it does matter what you do because we're going to stand before the Father. Therefore, I need never cave in, never give up to the trouble because it's passing away, but I'm not. I'm going to my father's house. Is that not the perspective of the whole Bible? Does not Paul say this present trouble, this little bit of suffering, like people trying to kill you, this little bit, of, it's nothing, it's nothing compared to the surpassing glory. So Jesus is saying, don't let trouble overwhelm you. Trust me. Heaven is for real. My Father's house is really there. He doesn't tell us about it. Oh, we wish we knew. He doesn't tell us. We have pictures. How do you describe the indescribable? Well, you use the most lavish terms you can. And then people say, well, that's, that couldn't be real. No, it's not. It's just trying to describe the indescribable. Streets of gold, that kind of thing. How do you describe the indescribable? Jesus says, trust me, trust me. It's real. Second thing Jesus says here in trust me is, 
He says, trust me, I have you in mind. I am going there to prepare a place for you. In my father's house are many rooms, and I'm going to prepare a place for you. If you've ever raised children, you know that one of the frustrating things when your kids are real little and something happens and you have to oh, give them a shot, or some little surgery or something, you can't explain how good this is. All they can feel is this little moment of pain. It's frustrating as a parent. Here you're inflicting pain. And they're crying and they're screaming and they're kicking. And you say, if you could just cause them to understand, it's the pain is nothing compared to the benefit. You're doing this for them. I suspect Jesus felt that way with his disciples a little bit. He's trying to explain to his disciples what's about to happen to him. And all they can see is the painful impact on themselves. He's going away and what are we going to do? From Jesus' perspective, though, where, what's he doing? Where's he going? Well, he's going to the cross. He's going to die. Why is he going to die? He's going to die in order to bring salvation to them. He's doing it for their benefit. So here on the heels of telling them he's going away, he makes the point that it's for them. I'm preparing a place for you, for you, for you. He says it again and again in this passage. For you, trust me, he says. I've got you in mind in all of this. Now it's interesting to think what kind of preparation Jesus is making. There's the little quip that if God made the world in six days, what kind of place must he be building in 2,000 years? I don't think that's the point here. The great act of preparation that was necessary was the preparation of a way for us to go to the Father's house. You see, in our natural state, we're not fit for the Father's house. Wherever that may be, we're not fit. We're sinful. We're unclean. We're not holy. We're not righteous. And so Jesus goes to the cross, the very thing that terrifies the disciples, he goes to the cross as a great act of preparing us. There on the cross, he paid the penalty of our sin that we might be washed away, that we might be made clean, that we might be made new, that we might be reconciled to God, that we might become the children of God, that the Father's house might be our rightful home. He's doing all of that as he goes to the cross. And isn't it just like some bunch of kids here, and they're saying, oh, oh, what terrible things are happening to us. And he's saying, no, trust me. Trust me. I'm doing this with you in mind. Of course, there's more preparation that continues to go on. We don't know what's going on in heaven. I know there's a lot of preparation that goes on here, though. God's not done working with us. The gospel still has to go to the ends of the earth. He still has chosen multitudes of people that have not heard yet. For these things to happen, they're going to hear. He's sending people to go. He's changing our lives to make us holy, to work out this salvation in us. And aren't we just like a bunch of kids that we're saying, I don't want to go anywhere. I'm comfortable here. I don't want to go. And he says, wait a minute, wait a minute. We're talking about eternity here and, 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 and finishing this work. I don't want to go. I'm comfortable here, Lord. And he wants to change us and make us holy. And we say, I don't want to change. He says, I'm fitting you for heaven. Jesus says, trust me. Trust me. I've got you in mind in all of this. 
great little statement of this truth. My daughter reminds me of all the time. In Jeremiah 29, 11, listen to this verse. It's a great verse. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you, not harm you. Plans to give you a hope and a future. This morning in the middle of your trouble, are you perhaps feeling a bit angry at the Lord? How can he let this happen to me? What does he think he's doing? How dare him impose this trouble on me? Wait a minute. Wait a minute. What do you think he's doing? What do you think he's doing? Has he turned on one of the children that he loves more than life itself? I think not. Has the God of all grace and mercy become a tyrant? I think not. Might his plans be to destroy you, not to bless his children? I think not. See, in the middle of our trouble, we need to not forget that Jesus says, trust me, I have you in mind. I'm going to prepare a place for you and prepare you for that place. Trust me. And finally, one more thing. Jesus says, trust me, I will return. Trust me, I will return. Verse 3, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me that you also may be where I am. In 1942 in World War II, as the Japanese expanded their conquest of the Pacific, they overran the Philippines, much to the consternation of the Filipino people. The Americans had to flee to Australia, but as they fled, that General Douglas MacArthur, one of a hero of a general, said, I shall return. And as the Japanese occupied the island and tyrannized the oppressed Filipino people. They lived with that promise. MacArthur says he's coming back. The trouble got worse, but MacArthur said they're coming back. It looked hopeless, but General MacArthur said he's coming. He hadn't forgotten. Indeed, the way that promise kept hope alive is one of the great memories of World War II, 50 years later now. And sure enough, in 1944 and 45, General MacArthur made good on his promise and led American troops back to liberate the Filipino islands. You see, the Filipino people learned you can have a lot, you can endure a lot when you have hope. You do a lot when you have a promise that deliverance is coming. And all they had was the best guess of the man of integrity, U.S. General. Here Jesus gives us a more certain promise. Here's a promise from the Lord himself. He said, trust me, I'll be back. I will return. We don't hear much of that promise anymore, do we? The world thinks it's foolishness. Indeed, our whole system of scientific inquiry 
is built on the assumption that everything is continuing at the same rate and the same way that it's always been and always will be. So for Jesus to like return would like really upset the apple cart. That our, our, our whole mechanism doesn't it doesn't fit our view of the universe. Christians perhaps themselves become uncomfortable with that truth. Sounds pretty radical that this Jesus is coming back. So people in the name of Christianity have kind of hedged a little on this. They've said things like, well, he was probably talking about coming in the Spirit on the day of Pentecost. Or, or he's talking about his return in the, in the renewed faith experience of his disciples. To which the Bible would say, nonsense. The Bible condones no such quibbling. You see, when Jesus ascended into heaven, into heaven in this body that his disciples had touched, John says, I, I felt him, I saw him, my hands handled him. And when Jesus, when they're standing talking, and suddenly he ascends into heaven, and they're standing there with their mouths gaping open. And the angels appear and say, you men of Galilee, why are you standing here with your mouths hanging open? That's a loose translation. This same Jesus who you've seen ascend into heaven is coming back exactly the same way you saw him go. Sounds like what Jesus said. I will come again. Say, so, well, there's a lot about it. I don't understand how that could happen. I don't either, but the Lord gives us, uh, gives us a description in 1 Thessalonians 4. Listen, the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel and the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first, and after that we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will be with the Lord forever. And then he adds this, encourage each other with these words. Like Jesus said, trust me. Trust me, I will return. Late in his life, the Apostle Peter, who sat that night and heard Jesus say these things, realized that it's been a lot of time now since Jesus said that. And you can probably already see that people are beginning to waver a little bit. Realizes it could get a lot worse. And so the Holy Spirit moves in Peter to write this. Listen to what he said. First of all, you need to understand that in the last days scoffers will come. Scoffing and following their own evil desires. And they will say, where is this coming, he promised. Ever since our fathers died, everything goes on as it has since the beginning of creation. Do not forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord a day like a thousand years and a thousand years is like a day the Lord is not slow in keeping his promise as some understand slowness he is patient with you not wanting anyone to perish but everyone to come to repentance but the day of the Lord will come like a thief the heavens will disappear with a roar and the elements will be destroyed by fire and the earth and everything in it will be laid bare. 
since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you to be? But in keeping with his promise, we are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth, the home of righteousness. Isn't that consistent with what Jesus said? My father's house, I go to prepare. I will come back. As we live every day in this fearful fallen place, it's easy for this promise of Jesus to slip further and further and further back in the corners of our minds. If we're not careful after a while, we're just living like everybody else without any real hope. We're living like the world lives, you know, that right now is all there is. Get all you can get. He who dies with the most toys wins. Get all the comfort you can get because comfort is everything. Happiness is everything. And it's slipping away fast, so live fast and enjoy it all. This is it. That's how most Christians live, too. And then trouble comes. And we're devastated. We don't know what to do. We have a child killed. A home falls apart. Business goes bankrupt. <coughs> We have personal tragedy, some health problem. What are we going to do? It seems like life is over. What kind of is if all that was all there was? But brothers and sisters, perhaps the Lord allowed that trouble to force you out of this deadly, deadly comfort zone. Because you see, it's in the face of trouble that we have to look beyond the moment and see if there's not some bigger meaning to all of this than just having fun. And it's when our home is falling apart that the longing for home in us grows so much that we begin to set our hearts on heaven, the Father's home. when our faith in our friends is falling apart and our faith in the government to take care of us has fallen apart and our faith in the system whatever system it might be has fallen apart and even our own faith in ourselves and our good intentions and our abilities and our self-sufficiency when that's fallen apart and when everything is crumbled to nothing and we find ourselves as a helpless puddle on the floor, then we're in a position to see reality as it really is. And to see that there is only one thing Jesus says that will stand forever. And that is his word. And he says, trust me. Trust me, heaven is real. In my Father's house there are many rooms. Trust me. I'm preparing a place for you. I have you in mind. 
Trust me. I won't forget you. If I go away, I will return and receive you to myself so that where I am, you can be. Trust me. Trust me. Trust me. Jesus said, don't let your hearts be troubled. Trust God. Trust me. See, the answer to trouble is trust. As we've tried to pointedly apply the truths, don't ever give in to the trouble. Because Jesus says that you can trust him. He says, in my Father's house are many mansions. We're not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again. Receive you unto myself, that where I am, there you may be also. There's a song about that. It goes like this. Soon and very soon We are going to see the King Sing it with me. Soon and very soon We are going to see the King Soon and very soon We are going to see the King Hallelujah, hallelujah, we're going to see the King. No more crying there, we are going to see the King. No more crying there, we are going to see the King. No more crying there. We are going to see the King. Hallelujah, hallelujah, we're going to see the King. No more dying there, we are going to see the King. No more dying there, we are going to see the King. No more dying there, we are going to see the King. Hallelujah, hallelujah, we're going to see the King. Hallelujah, hallelujah. Stand for the benediction. Jesus says, Behold, I am coming soon, and my reward is with me. I will give to everyone according to what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. Come, Lord Jesus. Now may the grace of the Lord Jesus be with all God's people. Amen.